Welcome to the discussion, Strategies for Effective Data Management in Government, sponsored by Veritas. Here's today's moderator, Tom Timmon. Welcome and thanks for joining us. My guests today are David Scott, the Director of Product Management at Veritas, and Michael Sarich, the FOIA Director at the Veterans Health Administration. And why don't we get right into it with the big picture, and that is the agency's overall approach to data. And Michael, of course, you're not the data officer for VA and VHA, but you do a lot of interaction with those people that do manage and classify data in pursuit of the mission of FOIA fulfillment. So tell us what you see. Great, well first, thanks so much for having me today. Really appreciate the, the opportunity to share the, um, the mission and the, uh, the good work that's going on at the Veterans Health Administration you know, in on many fronts here. So in terms, of, in terms of data directing the FOIA program, we're responsible for providing access to, to federal records. And so it's critical that those records are stored properly, that we're able to retrieve them. And it's not just from the FOIA perspective, there's um, succession planning, there's policy development. You, an agency, VHA or any agency, really wants to be able to put their hands on the data that they create and the records that they create to inform decisions, policy decisions moving forward, and also to be able to look back how we've done things in the past and what we're looking to do for our veteran community uh, moving, moving forward. There's a number of uh, very exciting initiatives at the Veterans Health Administration. Uh, one of the biggest ones is the electronic health record modernization going on. It's a multi-billion dollar project, and there's a huge team that's working on that. And what that does is it will allow uh, one service record. So from, for example, when I joined the Army, I had a, uh, a medical record, and then that record will stay with the Department of Defense while I'm on active duty and then the reserve components, and then transition, if I choose to, to the Veterans Health Administration to receive service-connected care. And so maintaining that data, that critical data for our veterans, the, um, the, the sanctity of that, because it really truly is life and death. It informs medical decisions that are made uh, down the line for these men and women. So keeping that data, uh, having a high level of confidence in that, you know, we work to be a high reliability organization under the vision of Dr. Stone, our executive in charge, and keeping that focus to make sure that we have that, uh, that you know, kind of our hands on that data, that it's accessible, that it's correct, that is retrievable, you know, and I'm sure we'll get into all of these topics moving forward. That's kind of the big picture for what's going on in the Veterans Health Administration. Data is critical um, in terms of informing decisions and indeed in protecting the, the lives and making medical decisions for our service members. And Michael, just a quick follow-up question. Do the mighty stream of FOIA requests that you have to deal with, you and your staff have to deal with daily, does that include requests for data sets and not simply records that might have been created for an individual purpose. Yeah, absolutely. As you can imagine, an agency as large as the Veterans Health Administration, we have just an endless stream of, of data sets. Many of those that we work to post on data.gov or to post proactively in response to, uh, to user requests. Our goal is to get as much information out as quickly as possible in the best format for our user community and our requester community. Uh, we, we've got a great story to tell at the Veterans Health Administration in my view, and I think in many people's view, and you know, getting that data out to the people um, in the wider community to be able to utilize is just fantastic, and it can be kind of a force multiplier. We use we view that data dissemination as a force multiplier, and the ability of people in the community to maybe take that data, provide insights that we might not have, or to kind of build on insights that we already do have, and kind of fine tune our service delivery to our veterans, which is our primary mission. Yeah, so the broader the aperture for data in that sense, the more useful it becomes. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sitting for, in a transparency seat, so that's kind of, you know, 
my uh, four by four every day, you know, what I uh, focus on is making sure that we're able to share those records and tell the great story uh, that's going on at 151 plus facilities with 9 million veterans, you know, what's going on out there in our, in our community. And really um, in a way that's part of the stewardship of the tax dollars to ensure that the significant uh, investment that the American people make for veterans is being um, handled properly and effectively. And so I, I view that as a really big responsibility for our, um, for our administration. I'm very proud of the work that our folks do uh, every day in the field to make that happen. Okay, excellent. And uh, David, from your point of view, looking across government with all the clients that you might deal with, what do you see as their big challenges in data strategy, data management? And I know you have a, a, a particular emphasis on compliance also. So maybe talk about some of those things. Yeah. Okay. Thanks. Um, and thanks for having me as well. Um, I, I would say the, the biggest change, and it's a bit of a cliche now, but just the breadth of content sources you have to be aware of. You know, I started my career in the 90s and all corporate communication was on Microsoft Mail and all of my files were on a, you know, in a room down the hall on a, in the server room. Now I've got 18 ways to communicate with people on my cell phone, you know, and, and different chats, different things proliferate every day. And even at the corporate level, Veritas has gone through three or four different collaboration tools in the last 18 months. And it's, it's, uh, it's a challenge for everyone to make sure you, you can get your hands around all of those communications, control them, prevent uh, connections you don't want to make, and capture the content that's relevant to make the decisions and to show the, you know, to, to capture what you need to capture for Freedom of Information Act requests. And, and also for long-term retention. Um, like Michael, I'm sure that you're working with the um, National Archives and probably have to provide certain content as, as permanent records. That's been a big challenge for a lot of our, our federal agencies. Yeah, and you mentioned those communication sources such as the cell phone. And I think it, at one time it came as a huge surprise to agencies that, hey, when you send that text, guess what? You could be creating a federal record. And so the source of items and the sources that create federal records is is ever expanding, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I look at like um, a couple of years ago, there was guidance from NARA around the need to capture Twitter. And at the time, it was kind of a joke. It's like Twitter. There's value in Twitter, permanent value. Then the administration changed, and now you kind of see where maybe that does play a role. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's constantly evolving. All right. And uh, with respect to compliance, that's an ever-changing type of thing too. I mean, FOIA has its own compliance requirements, but the Data Act also has imposed a lot of requirements on agencies for how they handle their data, how they create it and store it, ultimately toward that idea of being available to the public, findable, discoverable. Yeah, no, absolutely. And again, it kind of comes to the deluge of information. You get all these different channels, all these different sources. How do you find the relevant content from the irrelevant content? And how do you surface what you need and find it quickly to respond in a timely manner, whether it's a FOIA request, whether it's a litigation request? Um, so it, a big part of it, a big part of the strategy needs to be around metadata enrichment. And what I mean by that is classification. You know, can you tag every COVID message, COVID-related message? Can you tag everything related to a given topic? Um, can you look for content that's inappropriate? You know, maybe it's just language, something as simple as that. Does it include personal data? Now we've got the California Consumer Privacy Act. You've got to be very cognizant of what kind of data is being passed around. 
And is it violating any regulations? So I think that that metadata enrichment as close to source as possible. And what I mean by that is if you're archiving it, as you archive it, classify the data. If it's existing in the wild on a file or on a OneDrive on SharePoint, if you can classify and understand that content where it lives, that gives you better visibility and lets you take proper action to secure the data, get rid of data that's harmful, take corrective action if somebody's doing something they shouldn't. And a thought just occurred to me in that vein too, and this is a question for you both, and that is, here we are collaborating on a collaboration platform, one of many that are out there that people are using. And minutes from meetings at one time, you know, were, were still are federal records. What about these recordings and what about the discussions that are happening in this intensely online environment that agencies are working on, working in rather? Michael, does that, that figure into the kind of uh, records you think might be needed to be stored at some point? The, the video of these types of meetings. Yeah, absolutely. So, as we pivoted in the you know the COVID nineteen reality, where people went from you know in person meetings with with notepads to you know on call meetings, the um, the resources, the Zooms, and the the Teams, and the other and the WebExes, you know, multiplied. You know, as my team and I spend most of our days on video all the time. You know, so it's it's quite a um, quite a process, and the need to hold those for either historical value um, on some level or just to illuminate the operations of the federal government, which is what the FOIA is um, intended to do, are critical. And you never know, um, you know, what is going to be of interest to a requester down the line or what is going to eventually be, um, you know, when you want to be in the room where it happens, so to speak, as the as the meeting is, is going on, it's really critical to make sure that you're kind of, that you're capturing that. Um, as VHA and other agencies transition to, for example, perhaps Microsoft Teams, you know, uh, might undergo that kind of transformation, there's that record button. And, you know, people have the propensity to record that. I want to look at that later. Can you record this meeting because I'm not able to make it and go back later? Well, you know, then now you have a federal record. And now in, from a FOIA perspective, you have the obligation to produce it. But then you also have the obligation to protect the personal privacy of individuals. So you can see my, my home office. And, you know, what do I need to do there to protect someone's personal privacy? Perhaps there's pictures of their children. Perhaps there's other things that they may have inadvertently left out, you know, whatever that may implicate in terms of their personal privacy. So it does complicate uh, the field a bit, but it's the new reality that we, that we all live in and, and work in. And it's an exciting area for the FOIA community. In fact, the Chief FOIA Officers Council, the technology committee that I co-chair, we have a working group specifically focused on how we're going to deal with these collaborative tools and how we're going to very importantly inform two sets of key constituents. The first key constituent, of course, is the requester community, letting them know and letting them understand that these exist because they may not necessarily be in a systems of record notice, which is where most people will get their information on how to request what they want to request. But then also, of course, the our colleagues to let them understand that, yes, anything you say in this meeting can and will be um, the possible subject of a FOIA request so they understand that going in you know, when that red button, red lights on or green lights on, that these, that this information can be, um, you know, responsive to a FOIA request. And there's, as we like to say, there's no exemption 10 for, uh, you know, uh, things said in haste. So, uh, you know, to be aware of that and to maintain your, uh, your sense of bearing. 
Yeah, there's no dump button like we have in radio studios where it's as if you never said it, if you say something exactly. by accident. Exactly. But, uh, in fact, I use some of the videos online just as an aside because uh, it's a great way to find out how people pronounce their names in, a, in anticipation of, uh, of, of uh, interviewing them myself. But uh, David, let me ask you, it occurs to me that when you have these types of records, you've got so many data types all at once. And there's another one, which I guess for the, the imaginative is that you can also have a chat session going on alongside the video and the audio recording. So yeah, no, it's a, no, it's a great point. And um, I mean, the, the other side of it, you've got the, the ability to do a, generate a transcript at the end of every call. Both Zoom and Teams have that. I think some of the other players have that as well. And, you know, that's a permanent record uh, to Michael's point. Like that, that captures everything that was said for good, bad, or indifferent. And, you know, you think of uh, CEOs that have gotten in trouble for something stupid they said at, during a, a conference call, an analyst call. Now every meeting, every person, every dumb thing that was ever said, there's a permanent record of that. And you've got to think about that. That might lead to retraining of staff. Hey, be aware of this. There's a record, this will be captured. Um, but there's also, there, there'll probably be companies that are on various uh, ends of the spectrum. Some will say, we'll absolutely embrace it, see the value in that artifact. Uh, I guess an end user, I see the value of being able to search against every meeting that I've ever had, whether it's with customers or even with my the product management team, just for knowledge that was you know brought out during a meeting that I've forgotten. So there's value there. So some will embrace that, capture everything, and um, make it available. Others will be on the other end of the spectrum where it's a hard stop. We can't control this, this is too scary, don't do it at all. And there'll be just different areas in between. I think the transcript is more interesting because you can search against it. A video artifact or an audio artifact is only really useful from a discovery perspective if you can search on bits inside of it. You're not going to wanna to watch through, You know, if you have to force review of an hour long video times however many many meetings there are uh, out there in a given day for all your employees that's going to kill your ability to respond quickly so i think that if you decide to capture the video you've got to figure out a, a, a strategy for transcription that you believe in that will let you sort through the relevant parts and michael maybe that's a question for you i'm just curious if it, it, are you at the hard stop don't capture this or are you at the phase of embracing to some extent and how do you handle the FOIA requests against video content? Yeah, it's a burgeoning field. And one of the, um, the areas, you know, again, to kind of circle back to the Chief FOIA Officers Council that we're working on is agencies have different levels of capability with the video, um, even the video redaction software. Some agencies are very small and they don't have the ability to, um, say, onboard a very sophisticated product. And the tools even in this area are all over the place, you know, in terms of what you can do. Some of the tools you can make, you know, the next iteration of Star Wars on, and some of them are really simple and basic. So, you know, getting someone in your FOIA shop that can do this work is a challenge for agencies across the federal family and something that we look to do at the Chief FOIA Officers Council to make sure that, um, you know, we have the fact sheets out, we have the assessments of the different products, tell you what, you know, the, the kind of the four walls of it, and in addition to that, we found um, that the record retention schedules for these will vary, you know, in terms of video. So a closed circuit television at maybe the Social Security Administration when you walk into a field office might be a, a very small period of time. And that could be um, a function of that system. The system might only have 24 hours 
of uh, tape, you know, and then it cycles back over. And that's just the way it was when the system was put in place five, 10, 15 years ago. And then you have other situations where it's limitless. It all goes to the cloud and you can pull down whatever you want, whenever you want. And so from a FOIA perspective, that really implicates getting a request in timely and being able to go out and tag that video and say, you know, put a hard stop on this, almost like a litigation hold, but a FOIA hold to say, don't delete this. I've got a FOIA request for this. Upload it to this SharePoint, upload it to this file uh, spot. Let us work it and get it out to, to the requester um, the requester community. But right, it really is a brave new world in terms of this real um, kind of paradigm shift to going from in-person and informal in many ways to videotaped and you know the creation of, of that permanent record. And I think one of the fears of management and leadership, I think across the federal family, at least that's been expressed to me, is people are afraid of the candid expression of opinions if you know that you're being recorded. You know, it's one thing, you know, when you show up to a backyard barbecue and you're sitting around the, the backyard barbecue and you're kind of flipping steaks or burgers and having a conversation. It's another thing when you're set up for the family photo, uh, you know, in front of the fireplace. You know, when you're in a different mindset, it's a different kind of point of view. And some people are very adept at making that switch, you know, to say, oh, I'm on camera now. This is important. And some people, you know, it's a developing skill for some folks. You know, you have someone that may have been in the federal service doing exemplary work for 30 years and has never been on a camera. And it's new to them, right? And it's a new sure. toy. We're going to figure it out and that kind of thing. And they're incredible at their jobs. Um, but the fear is that then they would have um, maybe pause or reticence to share their full candid opinions, which we desperately need, you know, in any organization, you know, taking the federal side out of it, we desperately need everyone's best efforts, um, you know, to move forward, especially in a COVID situation or any, you know, significant management challenge. And the fear is that, you know, if we don't, uh, for example, use B5, to protect deliberative process in these meetings, or we don't use the tools in the toolbox that Congress and the president has given us in the FOIA field, then folks will be shy. And until we can get that guidance out and make sure that that's widely disseminated, as you mentioned, retraining, that's the world that we're living in today. Interesting. Well, uh, that's a good place to take a break on, which we will do at this moment. My guests today are Michael Sarich, the FOIA director at the Veterans Health Administration, and David Scott, the director of product management for digital compliance at Veritas. I'm your moderator, Tom Temin. This panel discussion is Strategies for Effective Data Management in Government, sponsored by Veritas here on Federal News Network. Amid a global crisis, we must adapt the way we live and work, staying connected and boosting productivity while ensuring proper data governance. Agencies must reevaluate how they store and archive data to meet federal record-keeping requirements. FOIA requests an ongoing e-discovery. New data complexities are introduced each year, but with Veritas Information Classifier, you can establish a holistic data management strategy and simplify compliance. Learn more at veritas.com classification. Welcome back to our panel discussion, Strategies for Effective Data Management in Government, sponsored by Veritas, here on Federal News Network. My guests today are David Scott, he's the Director of Product Management at Veritas, and Michael Sarich, the FOIA Director at the Veterans Health Administration. I'm your moderator, Tom Temin. And David, before the break, we were talking about this multimedia world that we're in, and uh, that has a lot of implications for how you find things, what it is you're looking for, the whole metadata and tagging question because you do have video, audio, chat, and, and afterwards the transcript, which is text, all of these different things. How does that affect how people classify, tag, metadata, and you know make things discoverable? 
No, it's a great question, uh, Tom. And it is a different, like, I think, as, as Michael said, it's, a, it's an emerging space, and we're kind of running to catch up to some extent. Uh, there's a lot of great emerging technologies that help with this. And so we're looking at what we can do to enrich metadata around audio and video, so that if you need to do discovery against that content, you don't have to listen to an hour of video to find what you're looking for. In fact, you don't have to listen to any video. You can hopefully rely on the transcription of that that artifact so you can quickly jump to the place in the video that you you care about and uh, I mean this also leads to a lot of interesting other ideas like say you're looking at body cam videos and you want to jump to a place where there's a scene of violence an act of violence you, again you don't want to look through the entire shift eight hours of video you want to find the bits that are interesting um, I was talking to a company recently that does image analysis and basically they take that video and they look at every hundredth frame and they'd look for things that indicate violence, actions that they can do, and they've gotten very good at this. And that led to a conversation of, you know, we do a lot of these videos where you see the close-up of the person's face. You can probably determine if they're bored, if they're excited, if they're engaged. Like, think of kids in school now. My kids, I've got uh, two teenagers in uh, virtual high school, and, uh, you know, are they actually paying attention is probably the critical piece there. And so then that also leads to some interesting play, uh, other ideas like uh, telemedicine. You know, if I'm actually later today, I'm having a doctor's appointment, same thing, you know, talking to the doctor over a video chat. Do I understand what they're saying? Is the doctor talking way above my head? Am I confused? Am I impatient? Am I an impatient patient? Am I angry that they're not getting to the point? Um, am I trying to get opioids? Am I trying to con them into thinking I have something that I don't have? All of these things make for very interesting analysis. And, and can we tell if someone is lying? Can we tell if there's a great rapport between a sales rep and a target customer? There's a whole world of new stuff that we can do with this, but there's the big brother aspect of it and the fear. And as Michael said earlier, you know, you don't wanna change the behavior of somebody because they know they're being monitored and analyzed. And I would think especially with that doctor-patient interaction, there's all kinds of HIPAA red flags and things that just make it so that's extremely not possible. Um, so just to kind of close on it, like I think that there's different levels again, like maybe you wanna learn from the video and then get rid of it very quickly. So like say again, doctor-patient interaction, maybe we capture the doctor-patient interaction when it happens, do some quick analysis. Is the doctor asking the right questions? Is there rapport? Is the, what is the key topic? Is this about diabetes? What's the diagnosis codes maybe associated with what's being said? That metadata lives on and is captured and available for the electronic medical record, but the actual video may disappear. The artifact may no, no longer be as important as all of the surrounding insight that we can get from that. And all of that surrounding insight can then feed into a broader data lake. Like then you could maybe look at correlation between the effectiveness of an individual patient, uh, sorry, doctor, um, effectiveness of that doctor's inter interactions with patients and then correlate that to patient outcomes. That gets really exciting. But again, you've got to get over that privacy and big brother type um, uh, mindset. Sure. And that's just in the health domain. And Michael, does that ring true to what what you're seeing in, in the, the way in the types of data you're handling and the types of data you're getting requests for yeah absolutely I mean just on a, on a broader scale you know taking the data that we um, develop as an agency and leveraging that data um, to improve health outcomes for our veterans is critical 
And it's something that we have teams of people doing award-winning work in the Veterans Health Administration in this very area to take that, day, that data and, and leverage it. And as we can, as we mature in our telehealth, just an incredible telehealth effort that goes on at the Veterans Health Administration with places, you can even go into, um, in some places, a Walmart and have a telehealth visit, you know, a safe, secure place for perhaps if a veteran doesn't have uh, access to, um, to high-speed internet and they can just go to, to Walmart or other, other locations where they can receive their telehealth visits, you know, kind of capturing that da- data and drawing inferences to improve the, the health outcomes of the veterans is critical, uh, you know, for our, for our agency. You know, they say the act of observing something, you know, people being on video just changes it you know, from a social science perspective. And, um, you know, I've got a kindergartner and a third grader and the act of observing them while they're doing work, you can, you can even tell how they, uh, how they change and either buckle up or, uh, or slack off as, as, as I did when I was a kindergartner and third grader. And I'm sure as, as we, as we uh, all did, but when we're focusing on, on metadata for, from a FOIA standpoint, it, that really just enhances the discoverability of it, you know, and it's going to then impact the user experience and kind of the quality of the products and the policy that our agency is going to uh, create and what we're going to share with our public. You know, we don't have the answers in our filing cabinet. It's not like we can say, oh, that meeting, go back in time and, and pick, that, pick that out. Even when you YouTube a video, oftentimes it'll suggest the exact minute where you need to be in there. And that's a great time saver if you're doing a project. I just need to know this one little piece of information. I don't want to sit through the first three minutes of this, but from, you know, minute 302 to 317, it tells you exactly how to do that job. And then you're good to go, I'm sure. All my fellow Harry homeowners, uh, you know, have that experience where they're trying to do a project and uh, they want just that little bit of expert um, kind of assistance. But that enriched metadata, it's kind of, you know, I go back to this, this a lot with, uh, you know, kind of paraphrasing Mark Twain. It's the difference between lightning and the lightning bug. You know, that's just one, three little letters that are the difference between lightning and lightning bug. But if you're looking for a, a breakthrough in data retrieval, if you're looking for a breakthrough in a policy standpoint, you'd probably prefer lightning to just having some bugs. So uh, mm-hmm. that's where we're at here at VHA. Yeah, so that has a lot of implications for uh, how you handle the metadata in terms of not just what it is you know and, and, and it's stored away, but the discoverability and findability are also qualities that it needs to have because you know, once something's in the data lake, it's there, but it's a potential. So to turn it into something actionable, that requires some real careful work with the right tools, I guess, David. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, there's a number of different ways to approach it. You know, you can do the transcription of audio to video, or sorry, audio and video to text. Um, we also have a technology called phonetic searching, which is very interesting. It's in our discovery, uh, e-discovery platform product. It lets you say what you're looking for, you know, and, and phonetically it will look at the waveforms and find that content. So it's great because it doesn't get tripped up on homonyms, words that sound the same, different meanings, different spellings, that type of thing. Um, there's pros and cons for both. And, uh, but I, at the end of the day, we want to help, you know, get to the relevant part. And, and to Michael's point, the idea of like looking for that phrase, looking for that bit that's relevant. Uh, another capability one of our partners brings is the ability to kind of pull out the key topics that I keep repeating. Like in this case, this one hour video or one hour call, I might've said healthcare five times. It will show me down the, the right near the artifact, right near the transcription, the five times I said healthcare. Click on that and it'll jump to that point. Instant one, two, three, four, five. And so it really aids in the discovery supervision um, speed and accuracy. You're able to jump to the relevant parts and hear that phrase being said without listening to the whole video. 
And Michael, I would think for the FOIA function, that puts a lot of new pressure on FOIA officers, people that fulfill these requests, because you could decide, well, they wanted this particular lightning bug of information, and here it was six times in this three-hour video, and you send the person 18 seconds of video, whereas you could say, well, here's what they really might be wanting, and you could send them three hours of video, and that's making a judgment that could either be the right judgment or it could be over-interpreting what you think the person wants or it could be even used to kind of obfuscate or, or against transparency. So I imagine that's kind of a new pressure uh, on how you handle all of that. Well, it, it is in, in many ways with the new technology piece, but it also isn't in, it's also an older type um, of challenge. So, you know, narrowly um, scoping uh, a request to, to find out exactly what the person wants, especially in a, in a media context, because you don't want to go through 10,000 pages of stuff if, if really 10 pages gets it, gets it done. You know, you think about um, the vast quantities of information that we have, that's a lot of potential energy, right? But you're looking for kinetic energy. You're looking for what will move the ball forward, for example, in a story or in a research project or whatever the case may be, or you're looking for a very specific piece of information. So we try and hone in on that. Now, that doesn't preclude us from doing things like discretionary releases. So in that case um, with 18 seconds of relevant um, you know, data points in a three-hour video, what would often happen in a case like that would be a good FOIA officer would say, here's the three hours, here's the 18 seconds that are most relevant to you, tagged here, here, and here, and you can look at the whole thing as a discretionary release, you know, if it's a publicly available type of um, video or federal record, I should say. And then they can make that they can make that decision uh, from there. What we try to do to the greatest extent possible, where we have complementary records that we can do a discretionary release for, we we provide those because we really again we FOIA exists to illuminate the operations of the federal government. We're in the Veterans Health Administration. We have an incredible story to share with the the American people and indeed the world in terms of the care delivery that we're providing to nine million plus veterans each month. And we're very happy to tell that story, right? Like that's a great story. You know, like every agency and every business, there's areas for improvement, and that transparency helps drive improvement. So, you know, we're always very happy to, to get that out and um, be as transparent as the 2016 FOIA Improvement Act dictates, the Holder Memo, which still holds, uh, still relevant in our, in our space. We're very happy to be as transparent as possible from that, and we'll often give discretionary releases, we'll often provide additional resources, we'll often point to pub other publicly available information, uh, our program office is doing an incredible job of putting information out for people. So, yeah, but you definitely can, you know, uh, if you were so inclined, which we're not, but if you were so inclined, you could kind of say, okay, well, you only wanted this, here you go. Um, but that's definitely not a winning strategy for any FOIA program. And, and one, I wouldn't counsel uh, any of my peers in the federal family to, uh, you know, sure. to kind of, kind of engage in. Understood. Now, we've been talking about video and large data sets and things that contain many data sets within data sets. But earlier we talked about capturing tweets and chats and instant messages and who knows, maybe even Instagram. A lot of agencies have Instagram accounts now, the visual agencies, the park service and so on. What are some of the issues with capturing those which are generated by just a multiplicity of mobile devices and it's really easy to, to mix the personal and the official at the individual employee level. Uh, so what are some of the issues there in capturing and then also applying the metadata and findability factors to them? David? 
Yeah, um, it, I mean, it, again, it comes down to volume, but it also, there's the idea that, you know, this is my company phone, but I have non-company communication vehicles on it. And what's fair game to be collected and what isn't? Um, I've heard of, uh, you know, I, different strategies for that, like uh, virtual phone numbers. So that you have a corporate number and a personal number on your phone. And that way your, your, your text messages and your personal calls use that number. And there's a couple of technologies out there that do that. And then that lets you collect all the company stuff and, you know, leave the personal stuff aside. Um, but there is, there definitely is that uh, challenge. Like what if you put in your personal Facebook account, something that's very relevant to your job? I mean, that's a very, there's a lot of, uh, you can handle that with uh, policy, but you don't have the ability to capture that unless it's publicly shared, you know, to a wide audience. So there are some challenges there, definitely. I'm curious how, Michael, if you have strategies around that or, or have you thoughts on that? Yeah, sure. So you mentioned earlier the 2013 white paper that NARA put out on um, on kind of social media and capturing the capturing those uh, those feeds or those posts or, or or what have you. And gosh, when you say 2013 and it's 2020 and fiscal year 21, you think you just think of how the world has changed just in that you know blink of an eye. How much has changed in um, in FOIA and in different apps that weren't even created because the person who created them was probably 12. You know, and they've gone on to create you know these world-changing uh, you know apps, TikTok and and, and the like, and, and these these apps that seem to constantly um, you know come to the forefront of of our uh, culture. And so there's some there's kind of a push and pull here, right? So one of the push and pulls is that you know VHA, VA, federal government, we own our email, right? So we control that 100%. And you know you you get your work phone. You understand that it's your work phone. You understand that you know anything you say can and will be on the front page of the Wall Street Journal, uh, you know, at any point in time. So you understand that. But what what comes into play a lot is the limited personal use. So, for example, on my lunch break, if I want to go on a um, a retailer, you know, it's Prime Day or something, you know, and I want to go pop on, no big deal. Limited personal use, not an issue. Go for it. You know, don't mind if any of my employees do that. No one, no one cares. But then it's ten o'clock at night. And you're mad because you just read something and you fire off, you fire off something and you just happen to, you know, you see this, you've seen this time and time again, where the person who owns maybe the United States Navy's account thinks they're posting on their personal account, but they hit the wrong button and they're posting on the Navy's account and then they got to do a hasty retraction. Oh, that's a Turkish battle flag. Don't look at, you know, don't, you know, take these things down. This is an international incident. So, you know, kind of drawing that line. And I think that's difficult for people in our 24 seven, always on work culture. I mean, I work very often. Um, probably too often, very late at night, you know, and many people do. And just the fact of COVID and the fact of, you know, I've got to take care of this thing with the family. So I'll put this to the side and take care of that when the boys go to bed or something, um, you know, when you have that time. And maybe you're not in your right, you know, state in terms of where you would think if I was in my office, you know, you'd have one point of view, but you're not, you're in your house, you know, and you have a different point of view. It's just a reality. So, you know, that kind of push and pull. So basically the strategy uh, overall is that we would never, you know, as an administration and certainly um, I think as a government, we would never just put something on one channel, right? So we would never put an official document just, you know, on an omni-channel basis on Twitter or Facebook or, you know, fill in the blank social media site. Um, we would have official backups for that so we could refer back to those. 
Um, but yeah, it, it is a real, it is a real challenge. And I feel for the, the guys and gals out there, the, the public affairs folks that are so in tune to the digital age and they've got all kinds of different, all kinds of apps and they've got this, they've got six burner Twitter accounts and they've got this and they don't know, you know, keeping those all those things straight. I'm glad that's not my, um, my role, but we do caution people, um, you know, colleagues, friends, especially to, to be very cautious in that space. Because again, when you're always on, that means you're always accountable. And if you're accountable, then there are consequences for, uh, for, for your actions. You know, we all love our first amendment. It's the freedom to speak. It's not the freedom from consequences for that speech. So we just kind of take it from there. All right. On that note, we will go to a short break. My guests today are Michael Sarich. He's the FOIA director at the Veterans Health Administration and David Scott, director of product management at Veritas. I'm your moderator, Tom Temin. This discussion is strategies for effective data management in government sponsored by Veritas here on Federal News Network. Amid a global crisis, we must adapt the way we live and work, staying connected and boosting productivity while ensuring proper data governance. Agencies must reevaluate how they store and archive data to meet federal record-keeping requirements. FOIA requests an ongoing e-discovery. New data complexities are introduced each year, but with Veritas Information Classifier, you can establish a holistic data management strategy and simplify compliance. Learn more at veritas.com classification. Welcome back to our panel discussion, Strategies for Effective Data Management in Government, sponsored by Veritas here on Federal News Network. My guests today are Michael Sarich, the FOIA Director at the Veterans Health Administration, and David Scott, Director of Product Management at Veritas. I'm your moderator, Tom Temin. And we've been talking about a lot of ways to classify data, make it findable, and make it discoverable, and make it useful for the FOIA setting, discovery setting, and whatever else we might need data for. But what we haven't talked about is how you get all this done, given the practical reality of the size of data sets that are coming through, the amount of data, the volume that we're dealing with. So really, this is an automated process, unlike when we used to stamp pieces of paper, you know, at one point, people could do that. They can't do that with digital media. So David, what are some strategies for the practical ways of getting that enriched metadata applied to the volumes that agencies are dealing with? That's a great question, uh, Tom, and I'd say that it all starts with, um, like, not all data is created equal, and so it starts with visibility. Understanding the data you're sitting on, and uh, that, that drives, is it properly protected? How long do I need to keep it? Does it live or die? Maybe it is garbage content. Maybe no one has touched this file in 10 years. Why do I keep keeping it? Why do I, why do I move it from one server to another? Why am I bringing it into OneDrive? Um, so there's that idea of it. I think it's, it starts with classification, understanding who's accessing it, how often. Um, is it a senior official? Is it some, you know, it, it, or not? And that, might, that alone might dictate whether this is a permanent record or a temporary record. Um, some content lends itself very well to capture immediately. And we call it like journaling of email, for example. Um, and uh, instant messages, smaller messages, that type of thing. You might want to journal everybody's communications. You might need to for certain regulations, but you probably don't want to journal my OneDrive account because I am constantly working on a, you know, every PowerPoint, there's 80, 90 iterations before it's done. And every Word document, every other thing, you do not want every change. That would just kill your discovery process. And I would say also that things like OneDrive and SharePoint, there's some level of retention and protection, versioning and things like that natively in at source. So I always pre preach the idea that, you know, you should 
proactively collect some content sources and other sources are, lend themselves more to collecting at the time of discovery when you're not collecting for the entire population, but rather for four or five people that are named in a specific litigation or for certain subjects for a Freedom of Information Act request. When you know exactly what you need, then you go for the bigger content and the content that maybe changes more frequently uh, and just helps to streamline the discovery process. But can the application of the metadata to all of this be happen, happen in an automated way? I think of it as almost like an egg conveyor, and there's a little laser that's marking the eggs, small, medium, large, as they go by, because absolutely. you can't do it by hand. Is, is, is that type of capability something that's yeah. available? No, absolutely. And I mean, I think sometimes it can be a combination of manual uh, definition by the user and automated, but we definitely, uh, automation has to be part of the, the equation. And so as content is, it can be analyzed in place using file analysis tools like our data insight product. Uh, they can be, the content can be uh, classified as it comes into an archive. Um, so that, again, you know that, okay, this is a senior official, let's keep this indefinitely, no end date. Uh, this is a company-wide newsletter. We maybe just keep that for a year, get rid of it, or maybe we don't even archive that content. So you can kind of remove the, the important stuff from the non-important based on that alone. And we can even set retention policies based on the relative importance of the content, even say where to store it. Maybe this item needs to go on worm storage because we want to make sure it's immutable, nobody can touch it or change it. Whereas other content, not only can it go to non-worm, but it can maybe even safely go up to a cloud storage repository instead. So absolutely, um, classification drives lifecycle and storage and, uh, and security. All right, and Michael, give us the uh, real life example of how you handle all of that automation and storage hierarchy questions at the Veterans Health Administration. As mentioned uh, with the emails, for example, under the capstone, under NARS uh, capstone approach, we have a number of senior officials whose emails are automatically captured because they have um, historical value or they're the final decision maker. And you really want to capture that and find out, you know, who made the final decision on X project and it's generally a small number of people. So for example, uh, at the, the Veterans Health Administration, we have 322,000 employees. Not all of them are making historically important uh, you know, decisions. And me in, in particular, I'm not making historically important uh, decisions or emails on a, on a regular, maybe even ever basis. So there'd be no need to automatically capture, um, capture and as David pointed out, maybe those are better captured on, um, upon demand. It makes it makes a lot more sense in terms of, of resource uh, allocation, but the robotic process automation, the RPA of this, is critical because you know if you have to take the time every time to add met metadata, um, you know, kind of manually, it's just not going to happen. People just don't have the time to do it. I'm thinking in particular of our hardworking doctors and nurses and folks. They're just not going to be able to to do that, and then still provide premier service to our veteran community. So it's that's going to be something that's just going to fall off the plate. You have to be realistic in terms of what's going to happen. The Department of State is doing some groundbreaking work in terms of categorizing their records, you know, what is in in terms of their emails in particular, where it's a quick drop down and then they, then they go. We're working on things, um, a project where we'll go in the background for electronically stored information and the user is going to be oblivious that we're even going to get this information which is great because the user has a day job, right? The user is serving patients. The user is investigating new drug uh, strains to fight COVID-19. The user is doing really critical work for, for, people's, uh, for people's health. And these, this saves that person 
from going into their emails or from going into their um, their file folders and then sending stuff that, that may or may not be uh, relevant. So that enriched metadata really is transformative in terms of being able to pull that in the background and make sure that we're filling our mandate under the FOIA to conduct a search that's reasonably calculated to capture relevant documents. And if we don't do that, then we're not meeting our mandate and then we're at litigation risk and at significant exposure. So making sure that these processes have a high reliability. You know, VHA is, is very focused on being a high reliability organization, even fine tuning some of the outstanding work being done across the world. That also applies to FOIA. That also applies mm -hmm. to records. That also applies to the whole discipline. We're all dedicated to making this vision of reality and further improvement, and it starts there for sure. And she just, I'm oh, sorry, I, I just wanted to play on like, one of the things you mentioned, Michael, that around uh, doctors. I mean, how much time do they spend making notes, annotating every visit with a patient? You know, maybe telemedicine can be a, a, a way of automating some of that. What if we could pull out the symptoms and tie that to a diagnosis code? What if we could transcribe the entire visit so that that goes into the record instead of the doctor having to spend an hour after each patient writing or whatever the time is? I'm sure it's a, a great deal of time and takes them away from actually caring for patients. That's the brave new world, the future that uh, I'd like to see. Yeah, actually taking that data, pivoting it, applying it to, to deliver better health outcomes for our veterans is incredible, especially in that so much of the, the groundbreaking work that occurs at the Veterans Health Administration is then immediately shared with the wider populations. Our fourth mission, which came into effect during the, during the pandemic, which is general population care, um, and just being able to, to provide that additional value to the American people and then indeed the world through that, through that research is critical. Being able to derive decisions and methodologies, treatment, um, treatment kind of pathways for folks is, is critical and it, it starts there at that, that, that data point. And Michael, just to bring it back down a notch, you mentioned a elaborate process for capturing and applying the metadata. Is that dynamic over time? Because as the data moves through the life cycle, whether it's headed to archives for permanent keeping or maybe there's disposal schedules, does, does that work also automatically over time dynamically? Yeah, it's an important, it's an important uh, topic in, in this area because, you know, just like you can have data creep, you can have metadata creep, and if, like, you can get so many tags in a document that, it's, that they, they're no longer relevant, right? Like, there's so much that then you go to do a search and you get the sun, the moon, the earth, and the stars, but really you're just looking for the stars or you're just looking for one star in particular, the sun. And so making sure that that metadata doesn't creep up to making it um, a previously usable, findable, discoverable document into something that just goes into the phone book, you know, and you end up having to, to start basically from scratch. Um, you know, we can all we all have the uh, the picture of the banker's boxes filled with paper that you have to kind of go through manually. If the metadata creep is allowed to go unchecked, you end up in that same spot. You know, you you have a little you have a few fancier tools, but you still end up with this large amount of work that an individual has to go through, kind of line by line or document by document, to ensure that we're meeting the mission. Um, so. Yeah, the metadata creeps an issue, and then in particular, it will change because it must change, right? It must change because as it, as it goes through the process. And that's one of the exciting things in this field. There's so many iterative changes. You know, the further down this path we go, the more challenges we see and the more obstacles we get to overcome. And that's one of the exciting things about working in, in this field is that there's always something new. There's always a new challenge that we get to work together with our partners in the industry 
and our colleagues across the federal family and kind of cross those bridges together as a, as a community. And David, let's move back up a notch. What should a infrastructure, how should it be architected to do all of this? Because we talked about robotic process automation, the multiplicity of sources and devices that are producing data that needs to be taken care of. And then we're in a cloud environment, a cloud era, if you will. So that must complicate the, or maybe it simplifies in some sense, the, the architecture of the system for ensuring that we capture what we need to capture in, in uh, these uh, data discovery situations. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a fair question. I think it, it depends on, uh, the, the cloud part of that depends on the agency's comfort with, you know, whether they want to be on-prem or in the cloud or some level in between. Um, we, we invest heavily in our on-premise environment. We also invest heavily in our SaaS solution and, you know, we're working towards a, a FedRAMP uh, certified SaaS, uh, solution for that as well. Um, but we also have a lot of customers in the middle where they have an on-premise environment for their archive, but they take advantage of cloud storage for a subset of data. And it might be, again, routed based on um, classification. You know, this contains personal data. Let's keep that on premise where we have tight control on it. Maybe it's a less serious, less, less uh, uh, dangerous content. It can be going put up to the cloud. Um, we also have a lot of customers that are taking what was on-prem and doing a lift and shift into AWS or Azure, and, and we can even support C2S with uh, Amazon for uh, you know for for security agencies. Um, so there's a lot of so that's part of it. I think flexible deployment and planning for the future, having a solution that can be deployed on-prem or in the cloud, and there's a clear journey there. I think secondly, um, you need something that can collect all these different sources. You need to know the sources that you want to collect and the sources that you want to prevent people from using. So there might be a bit of um, data loss prevention. Uh, there might be uh, actually hard stop of certain content sources. Um, but then for anything you know people are using that are critical to your business, you've got to have a path to capture them in some fashion or protect them at source. That's also an option. All right, and Michael, in the time we have left, uh, maybe comment on that and tell us what some of the success metrics that you have for the function that you have in fulfilling FOIA through really good background data management. We've got about a minute left to, to tell us what you think. Well, sure. I mean, we strive to have, um, when we're looking at, at this, we're looking at the context, the content, and the users. That really drives, that kind of trinity drives how we organize our information. We want to make sure that um, the users have a, a useful end, end product and, you know, that the context of the documents are there. And they're able to, to we're able to get that, that content out. It's a really critical piece, you know, as, as we mentioned, moving forward. But we're really blessed to have great partners at the Office of Information Technology, at the, the Veterans Administration, and of course our federal family at, uh, at NARA to implement these. So basically, you don't get too many FOIA requesters coming back and saying that's not what I wanted. We try not to. We work really diligently with our requesters. We use the old-fashioned tool of the telephone quite a lot uh, to to work with them and and make sure that we're getting what they deserve and what they need in a timely manner. Our motto is targeted requests and timely responses, and that's what we work to work to do to make sure that folks get what they need and they get it in a reasonable time frame, so we can help tell the great story of the Veterans Health Administration. You know the work that we're doing on behalf of America's veterans. 
All right. So ultimately, all this activity does support the federal mission writ large, which brings us to the close of the discussion. I want to thank today's guests. David Scott is the director of product management at Veritas, and Michael Sarich is the FOIA director at the Veterans Health Administration. I'm your moderator, Tom Temin, and you've been listening to Federal News Network. For more on this discussion, visit federalnewsnetwork.com and search Veritas. Thank you for listening to the discussion, Strategies for Effective Data Management in Government, sponsored by Veritas on Federal News Network.